Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Hello, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. I am Maria Morales with Colibri Healthcare. Our goal for this podcast is to highlight nurse practitioners and talk about some of the changes related to regulations and practice issues that have been shifting lately. The background setting for this conversation is how the pandemic led to emergency measures which enabled some nurse practitioners to be able to practice more fully than before. We can dive into this some more later, but the question remains as to what happens when we approach the end phase of the pandemic and states continue to end their emergency orders and return to non-emergency status. So during the podcast episodes, we will discuss nurse practitioner practice and what it may have looked like before the pandemic and during the pandemic. Then we can talk about how practice might be looking as state emergency measures expire and some states' emergency measures have already expired. We want to examine the differences between scope of practice and practice authority. And who doesn't want to chat about the possibilities of how the pandemic might have set the stage for more nurse practitioners to practice at a fuller extent? Could the need for an all-hands-on-deck kind of approach to healthcare during the pandemic have helped to advertise how much more nurse practitioners can continue to help with the provision of healthcare? Or will regulations just quietly go back to pre-pandemic normals? To address some of those interesting topics and jump into this nurse practitioner practice debate, we are joined by Dr. Alicia Pack a Doctor of Nursing Practice Prepared and Board Certified Nurse Practitioner. She is the President-Elect of the Virginia Council of Nurse Practitioners. So let's learn some more about Dr. Pack here. Dr. Alicia E. Pack, DNP, APRN, FNPC, is an Autonomous License Advanced Practice Registered Nurse and Board Certified Family Nurse Practitioner with over 20 years of work in patient care and health advocacy. From her experiences as a novice nurse practitioner, grew an intense interest and passion to make changes to the existing healthcare landscape, whereby the autonomy, voice, and respect of the nurse practitioner was the rule and not the exception. That's great. Her career has led her to advocate at Capitol Hill and most recently to collaborate with lobbyists, lawmakers, and interprofessional provider groups to promote the advancement of nursing practice and patient access to quality, affordable, and accessible health care. In addition to her grassroots efforts, Dr. Pack is currently the state president-elect for the Virginia Council of Nurse Practitioners and serves on their board of directors and government relations committees. She also works as adjunct clinical faculty for Old Dominion University College of Health Sciences School of Nursing's graduate program. And I'm kind of local in Virginia, so big shout out to ODU. And within their research foundation, she helps to create academic community partnerships 
for nurse practitioner-led behavioral integrative care clinics to promote health equity of vulnerable populations and the increased access of advanced practice clinical training sites throughout Southeast Virginia. Okay, so you have a lot going on and that all sounds very interesting. So before we talk about your successful journey from CNA all the way up to DNP, please share with us more about your research and your work with the integrative care clinics. I'd love to hear some more about that and uh, what some of the great work overall that's happened as you help promote health equity via nurse practitioners. Wow. Well, thank you, Maria, for such a generous introduction and for inviting me here to be (laughs) with you today. And yes, most recently, my colleagues and I have developed and implemented a nurse practitioner-led primary and behavioral integrative clinic based within a pre-existing homeless program. Discovering that many of the populations over social determinants of health were being met through the daily programs such as food, shelter, placement, job training, and more, there was kind of one thing missing, and that was the access to continuous and reliable health care. This was a federally funded academic community collaboration that allowed both primary and behavioral health care to be delivered to the community's underserved population, as well as it increased the opportunities for clinical training of both undergraduate and graduate nursing students enrolled in the university. It initially started as a pop-up clinic, sort of a pilot study, and has since expanded to being a full-time clinic offering an array of primary and specialty on-site and telehealth services. It really is truly an innovative project and something I plan to carry on in other underserved and geographically remote regions within my community. Oh, yeah, that's great. I really like that. It's fantastic. And how did you enter the world of the political machine of DC, so to speak? How did you transition from provider of care duties to then working with lobbyists and lawmakers? Because that's it's kind of a different specialty area kind of thing. You know, not every nurse does that. So how, how did that work? Yeah, <laughs> the political machine. Yes. Well, <laughs> it, it most certainly wasn't my plans to enter the machine, I guess, but rather the machine kind of found its way to me. Meaning like okay. through, the, through my years of work as an NP and in advocating for change and working tirelessly on the floor, but continuing to get shut down by leaders who didn't really prefer to hear the insights or recommendations of an NP. In addition mm-hmm. to my participation as a member of my local professional organization, I actually realized there was a tool to help us make changes and what I thought were injustices of care, legislation, and professional practice. I have to say, I I was also influenced and educated by my partner, who is an active member in the community, town council, and other decision-making boards. And and through the many years of his service and then listening to all the things, I indirectly learned a lot about the political landscape and how to navigate pathways for change. So it, it incrementally became a part of my daily life, and I guess as a result, kind of became a passion of my own. Oh, yeah, that's great. I mean, we need people like you out there advocating, so glad to hear about it. Okay, and so something else that was interesting, though, is you had mentioned to me something about progressing from your CNA up through your DNP, so I wanted to make sure we had some time to talk about that. So your professional journey allowed you to work at most every level of the nursing practice continuum. 
in high school as a CNA, then going through LPN school, receiving your RN diploma, attending nights and weekend courses to earn your BSN, obtaining your master's, practicing as a family nurse practitioner since 2009, and then most recently, your academic accomplishment as a doctor of nursing practice. So congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank you. I would just say, (laughs) hey, I'm kind of astounded by your commitment and definitely congratulate you you on your success. I think I'm I'm being aged here. (laughs) Yeah, I'm kind of wondering how you got all this in. (laughs) Maybe that'll be another podcast. How did you do all this? So yeah, so congratulations again. And just tell, what was your driving force? Did you set out thinking, I have this long-term goal and this is where I'll get by such and such a year? Or did it kind of just come in piece by piece? Yeah, I, I think more of the the piece by piece. You know, I must be honest. And looking back at the the, the high school part, it, it wasn't what I thought I was going to have as a career. In fact, I, I oh, I like stories yeah, like yeah, this. Yeah. Yes, tell us. I, I recall <laughs> trying hard to pick something else, maybe something more glamorous, or at that time, what I thought was more respectable. But I was good at caring for people. Uh, I, I discovered that. Mm. This was, in fact, a way that I could make a lasting and positive impact in someone else's life and even my own. I mean, instinctually, I've somehow always been a disruptor. (laughs) So the good thing about that is uh, it works well to be such a thing in my profession, especially now as the nation, you know, has called for change and the re-innovation of healthcare systems and healthcare delivery. Okay. All right. There's one thing to, let's say you had your diploma, you become an RN, and then you, you know, you go back to school to get, you know, your next uh, academic training. But can you tell us uh, just a little bit more of deciding, okay, I'm going to be an NP and then, okay, I'm going to get my doctorate or my doctor of nursing practice? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I always will tell you, I wanted to be an RN, you know, and after, I guess, years of work and many listeners can probably, you know, have felt the same. Uh, Working in the ER year after year and on the floors, well, to be honest, your body kind of starts hurting. (laughs) And right, right. And and more and more, Mm -hmm. you know, I started becoming confident in in my knowledge and ability and and ultimately wanted to be a, a leading decision maker in collaboration with my patients. So I became a nurse practitioner. And I do recall on the day of my graduation, in December of 2008, I, the day of, I looked at my husband and said, I'm going to go get my doctorate. And you should have seen his face. Like literally, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the words divorce was somewhere soon after that, because, you know, he's like, y- you know, it, it's a lot that they yeah. also contribute towards your education. You know, mm-hmm. so here we are after many years, you know, I fulfilled those goals and received my terminal degree within the past year. I definitely will say I am the class classic textbook case definition of a professional student. And yes, I can accept it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. And then there's something else we haven't talked about, something about being a nurse leadership fellow. Yes. Yes. Tell us about that. So I, I started my family nurse practitioner practice, actually, in the foundations of emergency and, and urgent care practice. I've also undertaken a, a various clinical leadership roles within the outpatient setting, I guess, to include like hospice and corporate health and mm. primary and behavioral health. 
which kind of led an opportunity to be led to apply to Duke uh, Johnson and Johnson's Nurse Leadership wow. Fellowship. So me with along with like 30 other colleagues across the nation trained for a fellowship for about a year and it was absolutely exciting. That's great. Love it. Okay, so before we jump into more of the heavy nurse practitioner regulatory type stuff, I just wanted to ask you, what is one of the highlights for you of being a nurse practitioner in these current times? Okay. So in these current times, it's truly empowering, actually. We're currently bearing witness to a massive growth and advancement of nurse practitioners practice and profession. There's 355,000 nurse practitioners nationwide. This is markedly higher number than that was first anticipated. I think it was 328,000 that was projected for 2030 by the U.S. Labor Department. But for 2031, projections of employment have increased to about 359,000 close to there. That's a jump. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. So because of our professional growth, low unemployment rate and advantageous career trajectory, the U.S. World and News Report actually has rated the nurse practitioner as the number one best healthcare job and number two, oh, wow. yeah, number two best jobs overall in their 2022 hmm. report. So that's even more thrilling. And, and even more thrilling is that the call by leading healthcare organizations such as the, you know, the National Academies of Medicine has helped facilitate the support of the dissolution of many kind of antiquated practice barriers that nurse practitioners have faced. So what's exciting for me, I'd say these are historical times for our profession, and I'm just gracious to be a part. Okay. And when you talk about antiquated practice barriers, are you talking about some of the like limitations on practice in some areas? Yes, there's a lot of a, a lot of red tape. I, I think a, a quick answer to your question would be, uh, we know how nursing started. Florence Nightingale in the in the 1800s, and she sought a need for human touch and caring. And, mm-hmm. I, and generationally, we've evolved from being someone who is from only assisting, then actually being a part of the patient healthcare team. And so with evolution comes change and innovation. Mm-hmm. And when there's need, then we, we too have to evolve. So the red tape with practice barriers has created somewhat of challenges in order to evolve. And so that's kind of what I mean. Okay. All right. Well, it's nice to have you here speaking with us today. I know you bring an interesting perspective since you have the nurse practitioner clinical background along with the heart for health equity and then the lobbying legislative advocacy context to your career. And I've found that you speak very practically and real, and you also bring the scholarly components. Anyway, I look forward to this. So let's take some time to discuss some of the regulatory related nurse practitioner practice issues and go ahead and jump in. Okay. So for quite some time, there have been articles, blogs, you know, co-worker chats, academic discussions, even political conversations where people are talking about the scope of practice issues for nurse practitioners. There's possibilities for enhanced or less restricted scope of practice, how NPs could support the provision of quality care and quantity of care, how they could fill some gaps, 
the sometimes untapped potential of nurse practitioners where regulations on practice are more limited. So let's go back to the beginning, as you kind of brought up Florence Nightingale already. How did the NP role come about? In, in doing some reading for this podcast, I read something about the official NP role in this country goes back to the 1960s. Yeah, yeah, that's correct, actually. The first advanced practice curriculum and, and training was developed by Loretta Ford, a nurse practitioner, in collaboration with Dr. Henry Silver, a medical doctor at the University of Colorado in 1965. Dr. Ford actually was a member of public health nursing faculty at the University of Colorado, their school of nursing, and was active in many of their higher education nursing organizations. And so while she was working, actually, to identify some advanced content for their clinical master's curricula for the public health school and the maternal child school, psychiatry and such. She became aware that one of the health conferences had identified a major difficulty in, in staffing local clinics. And, and so from there, she reported that she saw this as like an opportunity for nursing and worked with, mm-hmm. with yeah, with the pediatrician, Dr. Silver to formulate a model of care and curriculum drawn from her experience in rural Colorado and then from Dr. Silver's pediatric experience. So her idea for the curriculum development was to pilot a concept, I guess, or content prior to embedding it into the actual curriculum. I think she said, instead of putting in the curriculum, people sit around and talk all the time. So she was like, hey, let's do it. I can appreciate that. There you go. Yeah. And so the new model, actually, that is now known as the pediatric nurse practitioner role was devised to improve the health and well-being of those children to increase access to providers that were educationally prepared to provide such care and prepared at the university. I think one of the biggest things to remember, Maria, is that remember what happened here. Dr. Ford actually recognized a need both within her community and within her own practice. And as a result, she created opportunity. Her contributions have led the way uh, towards advancing nursing scope of practice and the development of various advanced practice roles that we have today. I'm glad to hear that background. All right. So we know once we have a new role, then comes the organizational change and the rules and the regulations. Mm. So once this NP role was established, it began to grow. Can you tell us more information about the beginnings of regulating and then legislating this professional NP role or scope of practice in general? Yes, of course. I guess according to the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, they're also called the NCSBN and the Federation of uh, State Medical Boards. Scope of practice is defined as a set of rules, regulations, and boundaries within which a fully qualified NP may practice. So early on, NPs actually created self-imposed regulations, emerging from what was once a certificate program, which is now requires graduate level degree. In addition, they adopted a uniform core requirements for all NP training and met uh, nationally vetted education and accreditation standards. These advancements were made in conjunction with nursing regulatory groups uh, who were responsible for monitoring and oversight of NP practice to ensure public safety. Yet despite these efforts to self-govern and standardize the APRN's preparation, APRN meaning Advanced Practice Registered Nurse, Mm -hmm. role cross-border recognition and scope of practice varies from state to state for nurse practitioners. This is actually unlike any other of their allied counterparts because 
it isn't such for RNs, MDs, and PAs. So if we dig a little deeper into the legislative process, state regulatory boards were established in the 70s or 80s, I'd say. The purpose of these regulatory boards is to protect the public and to ensure licensed professionals uh, comply within their scope of practice. In this instance, scope of practice is defined set of rules about the actions that can be performed under a professional state licensure. So across the country, each state has a regulatory board whose members are in good standing and primarily of the same profession. They are responsible for developing the content of the scope of practice for licensed individuals. State legislators then approve the content created by these regulatory boards, which in final draft is brought forth by the state's board of nursing. And then once approved, these statutes are then referred to as what many people know, practice acts. Aha. So you mentioned the legislation. So we know from earlier, you have some familiarity with the legislative aspect of uh, public health policy and the advocacy side of nursing. We, we know that nurses in general are advocates for patients. So please explain some more about the advocacy role that you and other nurse practitioners provide within this legislation and public health policy realm. Yes, that's absolutely true. Nurses are often instinctually advocates. Historically, mm-hmm. it's been primarily uh, utilized for the health and well-being of our patients. However, just as our patients needs professional practices and healthcare landscape change over time, so have the roles and responsibilities of advocacy and nursing. So within mm-hmm. legislative and policy realm, there are numerous ways in which nurses can participate and advocate to impact public health policy. Would you like me to name a few examples, Maria? Yes, please go for it. Okay, so grassroots efforts. You can join your professional organization. Often many only join their national organization, but it is essential that they be active in their state organization as well. Remember, they have different agendas, one federal law, the other state law. And as many know, we are often more often directly impacted by our local and state governance daily compared to federally or nationally speaking. You could also- Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Yes, that is a great point. You're right. Sometimes we're very nationally focused, but not so much locally. And, and that really impacts exactly where right, we're at. Right, right. At home every day. Yes. <laughs> I guess another example could be meeting and contacting your representative. There are user-friendly tools available to help guide uh, your advocacy efforts with confidence. I know sometimes it's like, oh, I don't want to reach out. Oh, they're a senator or they have all these letters or, and, and that's not the case. And these tools actually do, do help. And what also would help is educating yourself in the legislative process, knowing who your representatives are, making yourself known by contacting them on a, on a frequent basis. Attending town halls are another good idea. Believe it or not, they're just like you and me. I recently attended one for a delegate locally. And she looked like me, talked like me, was the same age as me, <laughs> had long green nails. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, we put, we put these people on a pedestal sometimes and they're just like you yeah. and me. So they represent us and, and, and it's important that we communicate our needs to them. I, I think one of the biggest things, Maria, that I've learned in advocacy is documenting the stories of impact, they, Hmm. meaning your representative, want to hear how you 
impact your community or what is going on in your community. And if you don't want to directly impact or, or directly communicate with your legislator, you know, you can shoot your email to a professional organization. Even if you're not a member, they actually want to know the barriers and then they're there to help. Joining a board is a good idea. And ultimately you could run for public office. We recently had uh, two people that are nurse practitioners that are in office in Virginia. One currently is running in a very controversial race in the Senate for federal seat. So mm -hmm. it can happen and it does happen and we're moving towards that. So those are just a few ways. Yeah, that's great. You know, within the nursing community, we always talk about representation and things. It's always great to have nurses uh, have a seat at some of these tables. Absolutely. You know, they, they've been there. They know what the issues are and, and what it feels like. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the lobby part. You have had some experiences with collaborating with lobbyists for promoting the advancement of nursing practice. So uh, educate us about the lobbying part. <laughs> lobbying. Okay. So, <laughs> so let me give you the definition of lobbying. So a Merriam-Webster definition, the phrase to lobby or the term lobbyist dates as far back as the 1640s. It actually has been used to mm -hmm. reference people or the action of people who met in a gathered area, like a lobby or a legislative hall, okay. to discuss the issues with or influence the decision-making of their elected officials. And although politics have certainly changed since the 19, or rather the 1640s, the need for lobbyists in an official capacity actually has not. And most state and national professional organizations work with lobbyists to effectively move their organization's agenda forward. Lobbyists are well-versed and experienced in the, in the legislative arena. They are graduate prepared. They often have a background in law, health policy, or, or healthcare administration. Their primary agenda, remember, is to navigate the complexities of policymaking and to advocate on behalf of their client's interests. So in the NP organization world, this is quite helpful as we often do not have the time or legal expertise mm -hmm. it takes to do so. We have other things okay. that are taking up our time. Let me give you an example of how a lobbyist would help me. If my MP organization wanted to put forth legislation to obtain full practice authority, the lobbyist will assess the political climate, report back to the organization's leadership and government relations committee regarding an ideal strategy for the best outcomes for the upcoming legislative session. They also draft the written bill. They help find a congressional representative in either the House or the Senate to sponsor the bill. If bipartisan sponsorship can be obtained or there is a large amount of congressional support or sponsors for the bill, the better our chances are for the bill to be addressed during the session or actually passed into law. Okay, that was good. That helps me put the picture together a little bit and see how these things move. Back to NP scope of practice. Okay. So the pandemic was interesting. <laughs> it ushered in some expanded practice possibilities or allowances, you know, because we needed it. Right. So is there a way for you to explain kind of where we were before the pandemic 
And then the next question would be, you know, about changes to allow an expanded scope of practice for some nurse practitioners. Okay, so one way to determine this is to look back at how the state's practice environments were defined by leading nursing organizations, such as the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, or as we like to call AANP. So prior to and even now, in many states, the NP scope of practice is reduced or restricted. That means that the set of rules mandated by that state in some way limit the NP to work exclusively under the nursing board or to the full extent of their training and expertise. National nursing organizations have categorized the practice environments of each state into one of three categories. And many listeners may be familiar with AAMP's map of the U.S. that color codes these states in red, yellow, or green categories. So the three categories, okay, are restricted, which are red states, and that means that they have state laws that restrict the ability of NPs to engage in at least one element of NP practice. This state law requires career-long delegation or team management by another healthcare provider in order for that NP to provide care. So reduced practice, which is the yellow states on that map, they have practice, state practice and licensure laws that reduce the ability of the NPs to engage in at least one element of nurse practitioner practice. So the state law requires a career-long regulated collaborative agreement with another healthcare provider in order for the NP to practice, or it limits the setting of one or more elements of the NP's practice. And then lastly, we have the green state, which is the goal for our leading nursing organizations. And that is the full practice state or full practice authority, which means that these states practice and licensure laws actually permit all NPs to evaluate patients, diagnose, order and interpret diagnostic tests and initiate and manage treatments, including prescribing medications and and controlled substances. And this is the key under the exclusive licensure authority of the State Board of Nursing. So let me give you an example, Maria. Virginia is considered a restricted practice state because it requires a five-year physician practice agreement and is not under the exclusive license authority of the State Board of Nursing, but rather the Joint Boards of Medicine and Nursing. And to note, in the states without full practice authority, Virginia actually has a five-year requirement for autonomous licensure, which is a major outlier compared to similar states with a mean of two years. All right. So prior to the pandemic, how many states in how many states were nurse practitioners in some way limited in their ability to deliver patient care? So as of 2019, there were 28 states that limited nurse practitioners in a variety of ways. So for example, many states require nurse practitioners to work under the supervision of physicians through contracts called collaborative practice agreements, where physicians determine which exact services NPs are allowed to offer and restrict the ones they believe NPs lack the training to deliver. Let's see, in Florida, it's required NPs practice 25 miles or less from their supervising physician's office or 75 miles within a county that is neighboring to that physician's office. In Missouri, NPs were prohibited from practicing more than 75 miles from their supervising physician. And Some mandate uh, nurse practitioners practice under physician supervision for a minimum period of time, 
and uh, additional education before a collaborative agreement is required. For instance, Minnesota NPs must work 2,080 hours under the supervision of a physician before they can practice autonomously. Illinois nurses must work 4,000 hours under a supervision of a physician um, and then complete 250 additional hours of continuing education. Okay, that 2080 is sticking out to me. I think we might talk about that later. I think that's a bit controversial. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh, it is. (laughs) Whether you can just graduate and start working or you need these hours. But the time has gone by quickly, so I think it's already time to conclude episode one of this podcast. And thanks to everyone for joining us. Please return for episode two as we continue discussing this topic. A sincere thank you to Dr. Alicia Peck. And this is Maria Morales for Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics. <laughs>